want to take you back to the Last Supper. Jesus is speaking of his impending death. And even perhaps more horrifying to his disciples, he says that they will desert him. Let me read it to you. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all disciples said the same. Now, we know what happened. Out of fear, Peter did just that. He denied his Lord three times. And every last one of the disciples at the time of the arrest fled away. Jesus was arrested. He suffered a humiliating execution of that of a, just of a common criminal, a criminal. So, as he said, the shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. And that should have been the end of it all. Of course, as we know in Acts, that was not. Now, to set the stage for our text, and by the way, if you would like to follow along with me with that text, it's Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42 we're going to be looking at. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 774. So let me set the stage here with the the characters so we can kind of understand our text. You're going to hear about the the high priest. Now, in this time period, the high priest, of course, he's the head of all the other priests. He was actually appointed by the civil government. Now, he served specifically as the head of the temple. That was his, his territory. But also, he was the head of the Jewish governing body at that time, known as the Sanhedrin. So you can understand how powerful of a man this is. He combines the top religious power and the top political power of the Jewish people. Now, you can see a reference again to the party of the Sadducees. Now, in Judaism, just as in Christianity, there are different churches, different sects, different perspectives of of their faith. We know the Pharisees best of all because of their opposition to to Jesus. But interestingly enough, whereas it was the, the Pharisees on the front stage opposing Jesus in the Gospels, now that we're in the Acts, it's the Sadducees who take over that main role of opposition. And they are, for the most part, they are the Jewish aristocracy. They're the wealthy family. They got up there in a high part of their society. Uh, the Romans liked them because they, they were very firm about keeping the status quo, which at that time meant you had to be under Rome. Now, together, these leaders make up what's known as the Sanhedrin Council, a body of about 70 men. It's the highest Jewish authority. It is the same body just a few weeks earlier. Jesus had stood before and he was condemned. It is this same body that the 
disciples had fled from. Now, to set up this dramatic scene, here they are. They're going to appear before this august body. Luke begins basically with a comedy sketch. Look with me at it, beginning now in chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned. By the people. Now, what is this scene about? I mean, why does why does the Lord release the apostles from prison, only to have them arrested again? I mean, I mean, it could be, it could be, he just has a sense of humor and he likes comedy. I mean, the, the authorities and the guards, they certainly had to feel foolish. But there's there's something that this episode is making very clear, and that is who is really in control. Okay. Now, what is about to take place is not because of the high priest and his, his cronies are, have taken charge. I mean, they can, they can not only not be able to keep the apostles in prison, they never can figure out how they got out in the first place. And then to add insult to injury, the apostles, far from, from hiding, they're going right back onto the grounds that the, that the high priest, this is his territory that he's particularly in charge of. And they are preaching the very same things that Peter and John just a few days earlier had been warned solemnly not to do. No, the apostles are before the Sanhedrin because the Lord, their master, has arranged for a confrontation. So pick, let's pick back up in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, as I said, Peter and John, they had already appeared before this same body. That was after their healing of the lame man. And at that time, the council had charged them. No longer cease preaching, cease acting in the name of Jesus. Well, the apostles defiantly continued to proclaim the name and resurrection of Jesus. 
and more alarming to the officials, as they make clear here, was that the apostles were holding them accountable for Jesus' death. And so the apostles were remaining as bold and defiant as ever. Now let's pick up again in verse 29. Well, Peter and the apostle answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I tell you, those apostles, they just don't let up, do they? Jesus, whom you killed. And you can, as we can easily imagine, the authorities did not respond well to this. And so we're told in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So it looks like the fate of the apostles is the same that had come to their master. The time is about up for them. But then a new character enters the scene. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, I don't know where Gamaliel was when Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin. He's spoken of in other sources outside of the scriptures. And as Luke said, he is always spoken of in a highly respected way. Is Gamaliel a secret follower? Does he become one? Well, we don't know. But one can guess why he speaks up. And it has to do with him being a Pharisee. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like each other. They were opponents of one another for a number of reasons. But there's one particular doctrine that they particularly were at odds about. And that was the resurrection of the body. The Sadducees believed there is no such thing. The body that dies returns to the dust, never to rise again. The Pharisees did believe in a final day of resurrection to come for God's people. So now, though both Sadducees, Sadducees were also have been opposed to Jesus, And the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, even though they were both opposed to him as a false prophet. What is different 
It's this claim of Jesus' resurrection. And they don't necessarily believing it, but it, it's making them pause. After all, Jesus' tomb is empty. Okay? It's empty. That could be verified. What, what if? What if there's something to the claims made about him? So Gamaliel has hit a chord, at least with his fellow Pharisees on the council. They're thinking, well, what if? What if there's something to what these former followers are saying about Jesus? What, what if it, this possibly could be of God? Because, after all, how are they to explain what has been happening over the past few weeks? There are the miracles. There's the astounding growth of the new movement. And most puzzling of all, what happened to these previously proven cowards? The shepherd had been struck. And it appeared that the sheep were scattered, but now they're back. They had deserted their Lord. For at least 40 days, they had remained out of the public's eye. And it looked like, okay, the memory of Jesus, along with his body, has finally been put to rest. And then... Ever since the Feast of Pentecost, these weak disciples had not only come out of hiding. Here they are. They're they're boldly, they're fearlessly preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And they're doing it with an eloquence that their lack of any true education, they should not have had that. What if? What if this is of God? It's at least enough that the Pharisees listened to Gamaliel so that the Sanhedrin on a whole, they could not act and have the votes uh, to carry out what they wanted to do with the apostles. The Sadducees probably were not persuaded. And it's evident in what they do next in verse 14. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, if they're not going to get that opportunity to kill the upstarts, at least they can beat them a little bit. Now, that beating actually makes some sense. See, already they had tried merely before to just warn them. You know, they'd had them in front of them and they'd said, don't preach his name anymore. And obviously, that did not work. So maybe... We need to be taught a lesson. Maybe a good beating will quiet them down. I mean, they could have even argued that it fits in with Gamaliel's counsel. If this movement is of God, well, give them a little bit of trial of suffering, and that will reveal whether or not it is so. Are the apostles bold because they are truly moved by God, or it is because, well, they're winning a lot of notoriety? A lot of popularity. They're being successful. A beating will see what they're really made of. And so we see what they're made of in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
So far from dousing their boldness, that beating proved kind of proved to be a baptism of repentance for them in the sorts. They had failed the previous test. They had failed their Lord in the face of danger. And now they have opportunity to stand the test. They were given that opportunity, not by the Sanhedrin, but by their Lord to suffer for his name. And so, in a sense, that beating was a kind of a, a way of redemption for themselves. And so, they were filled with joy, and they go on and continue preaching just as boldly as they had before. As we look at lessons from our text, I want us to go back to, the, to that answer that the apostles had given to the Sanhedrin, beginning back in verse 30. They state very clearly the message that they have been preaching. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What do they present? They present the gospel. They present, first of all, the events of the gospel. Jesus died Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus has ascended on high. And then they state the mission of the gospel. The whole purpose of this is to bring about repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel of, of the apostles. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross, receiving the curse for our sins. I want you to note how the apostles described the crucifixion. They don't, they don't say whom you killed by crucifixion. They say what? By hanging him on a tree. And they're alluding to the Torah, to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, to be exact, in which it says a hanged man is cursed by God. That's where their way of saying Jesus received our curse. But shouldn't that statement have worked against Jesus, at least certainly before these men? Well, it would have, if not for what then happened. As they state, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Moses, who who wrote the Torah, who wrote about that curse, this God raised Jesus from the dead, which means that he vindicated him. But as they're making clear, too, the gospel does not end with simply Jesus coming back to life. This same God did what? Exalted him. Jesus ascended into heaven, not merely entering in heaven as, as we hope someday to do. But he ascends up there at God's right hand. That is what is meant. A way of saying that he has received all authority as leader and savior. So that is why they had said in the previous occasion before the council that there is no other name under heaven by which anyone may be saved. Now, these events that Jesus went through were intended to lead to a response. We, to repent of our sins. We are to, to see what has been done. We are to repent of our sins. We are to be convicted of our sinful condition. We are to acknowledge our rebellion. And then we seek forgiveness in the name of Jesus. 
we come under his protection. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that the apostles witnessed, that they were made witnesses of. It is for this gospel that the apostles were to dedicate their lives proclaiming. They would face more suffering. They would eventually die for it. It is this gospel that everyone must stand on the day of resurrection, not before a council of men, but before God, and give an account for either believing it or for rejecting it. A decision, a right decision, is what the apostles were insisting of everyone, including, these, including the high priests, the other priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's why they were so insistent on making clear that everyone is responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, Pilate may have passed the sentence. The Roman soldiers may have been the one who actually placed Jesus there on the cross. But everyone had a hand in killing him. And so the apostles, they minced no words. When they were preaching in Pentecost into the crowd, they said, you killed him. After the healing of the layman and the crowd gathered around them, they said, you killed Jesus. When they appeared before the Sanhedrin, they said, you killed him. And what they were hoping for in each time was the response that they got the first time with the people at Pentecost. Remember how they responded? It says they were cut to the heart and they asked what to do. That's the response they wanted. And we saw the response of the religious leaders. They responded with anger. But the apostles were also met with a third response. And that was from those who neither repented under conviction nor did they react in anger. These were the people who kind of watched. We were told about them last week. They just kind of watched and see what would happen. They were the middle ground folks. They neither made a decision for nor a decision against. And this is what most people think is their position today, isn't it? All of our our neighbors, they think that, look, if there should turn out that there is a God, and and if the God is the the same God that the gospel makes him out to be, and, and if Jesus really is the one who died for our sins, well, then when the time comes, you know, when, when I have to appear before God, well, they can say, look, I was open all along. You know, I never rejected him. I always thought he was someone good. They never did, after all, reject him. And, and, and by the way, we certainly never would have killed him. Well, what's being taught here is that we're to understand that we all are responsible for the hanging of Jesus upon a tree. As much as if we had turned him over to Pilate, as much as if we had been the ones who pronounced his verdict, as much as if we had been the ones who nailed his hands and his feet on the cross. No one, no one got the upper hand of Jesus. He himself had said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and being killed. His death was not an accident. He hadn't come for one purpose, and then some bad folks got him. He went to the cross 
to make atonement for our sins. It's our sins. That's the reason he went there. It was his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone that could make atonement for our sins. We with our sins are responsible for that curse of his hanging on a tree. And so we are called. What he wants us to do is repent of those sins and to call upon him. One of my, my Facebook friends shared, posted on there, something called the, the Other Serenity Prayer. And let me, let me read this, this prayer to you. God, grant me the serenity to stop beating myself for not doing things perfectly. The courage to forgive myself because I'm working on doing better. And the wisdom to know that you already love me just the way I am. This is what I call the gospel of man. The gospel of man is this. Hey, look, we're all okay. God loves us as we are. This, you know, maybe we can improve a little bit. And, and, you know, it's good to try to make some changes. But, hey, you need to accept the fact that God already accepts us. I mean, no wonder that this is, of course, the most widely accepted gospel. But it is clearly not the gospel of the apostles. It was not the gospel of Jesus, whose very first word as a preacher, you know what his first word was? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It is Jesus, more, much more than anyone else, it is Jesus who warned of the condemnation of hell. Now, it's not a, a gospel that is easy to hear, but as Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. We must proclaim not what people like to hear, but what God wants them to hear. We must proclaim, when you think about it, though, truly, what truly is the good news? I mean, I ask you to think about this. Which is a a better gospel? Is it this? You know, God loves us as we are, and we need to just be more forgiving and accepting of ourselves. Is, Is that really good news? Does it really change Anyone? I mean, the only way that it can is if they successfully ignore the bad that's in them. Even the wicked that they have seen in them. That keeps coming back to the surface. It can only work if they make themselves, well, just think positively. Regardless of the evidence. Isn't the better news this? God first loved us. Yeah, even as we were sinners. Even as he saw all the ugliness inside of us. That God in his mercy, seeing all of that, paid the highest cost to redeem us from guilt. To wipe away all the the ugly stains. To give us assurance that we are reconciled to him. That we are accepted by him. And one that will last forever not based on, you know, how well we keep telling ourselves how good we are. No, on how well we are, are doing one day to the next. But all upon the all-sufficient work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's done it all. He's done it all. He has redeemed us. We have it. 
mean, if you want to pray for serenity, pray for the redemption, the acceptance, the love that is found in Jesus' name, then you will find true peace. Redeemed. Redeemed through God's infinite mercy, His child and forever I am, this is good news that is worth boldly proclaiming. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he hung on a tree out of love. And he completed his work. He didn't do it part of the way. He didn't do his best. He did a complete work for us. Father, we pray all the more that we shall live for him. And I pray for anyone here who's yet to make that repentance and confession, open their eyes to awaken them to this wondrous, wondrous gospel. In Christ's name, amen.